welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I know that 2020 as a year has been pretty garbage for any number of reasons. I mean, just pick one. For birders, the cancellation of birding festivals and the inability or difficulty of traveling far beyond your immediate location has to be has to be up there. No bird club meetings, no bird walks. Though I understand some bird clubs are wading back into that pool. For the record, I'd be curious to hear how you plan on doing it. So send me a send me an email at podcast.aba.org. I mean, that's to say nothing of everything else that is going on. But for the American Birding Podcast, there's a small ray of light this week. A small victory, because this week is episode 27 for the year, and if you have been following us in the past, you know that until spring of this year, we had a bi-weekly schedule, and that 26 was the maximum number of episodes you could fit in a year with a bi-weekly schedule, and we have beaten it this week, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, Part of the reason we've been able to keep this schedule up is because John and I are sitting at home, and once things begin to open up and festivals start happening again, fingers crossed, next year, if I'm being honest, I think it will be summer before we get back to any sort of real normalcy. Uh, We'll have to be a little bit creative about how we keep this weekly schedule rolling, but I think we can do it. I've got ideas. On the show today, I have some thoughts about misidentifying birds and why it is a good thing. Or at least not a scary thing, and how people got me or missed me when I tried to make this case. But first, from the outside, the birding world can be an exceptionally weird place full of odd, if endearing, people. Those of us who are in it, and I mean deeply in it, are probably unaware of exactly how strange it can be. Enter writer Julia Zarankin, who has a new book about her path to birding to offer some charming and funny and important insight into what we look like to the normal folks and why you'd want to be involved even knowing that. It is Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder. She joins me to talk about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of August 2020. A week after the landfall of Hurricane Laura and the birds blown inland are beginning to shake out a little bit more, along with the somewhat expected sooty turns, came a pair of band-rumped storm petrels, one in Missouri, Stoddard County, which was a second state record, though the last one came in the 50s following a storm with a very similar path to Laura's. Another band rump storm petrel was found in Hardin County, Tennessee. Likewise, not a first, but one of very few. So two storm petrels, obviously pelagic birds blown up into the middle of the continent. Notably, band rump is the most common storm petrel in the Western Gulf this time of year. Also in the Midwest, a frigate bird, probably magnificent, was seen on the Mississippi River near Hannibal, Missouri, Quincy, Illinois, just kind of in it area. Uh, This is just my perception, but frigate birds do seem to get caught up in the outer rings of the storm and like pushed around rather than entrained in the eye like storm petrels and thus tend to show up a few days after the storm passes. It would not shock me to see a few more of these records, certainly in the time between when I recorded this part of the podcast and when the episode drops. Not necessarily storm-related, but similarly seabirdy, was Ohio's first record of brown booby and summit county where it hung around for a few days this following last week's missouri first along with additional brown boobies in ontario and tennessee uh, definitely birders in that mississippi ohio river valley probably need to watch out for these 
Those are the highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at the rare bird scene across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash RBA, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The path to becoming a birder is as much about you know coming to grips with what is happening to you as it is about finding increasing joy in birding. We may all sort of end up in a similar place, but our paths to that place are as individual as we are. There are a lot of potentially interesting stories there, and Toronto writer and lecturer Julia Zarankin tells a bunch of them in her new memoir, Field Notes, from an unintentional birder out in September in Canada and in October in the United States. She is with me to talk about the path to becoming a birder. Welcome, Julia. It's so nice to talk to you. It's, such, it's so great to be here. Yeah. How long have you been writing this book in your head? Um, let's see. I started birding just over 10 years ago. And pretty shortly after I started, I started writing a blog and just to make sense of what I was seeing. And um, maybe like four or five years after that, I thought, hey, maybe, you know, maybe there's a book here. Um, So I guess I guess it had been percolating for a while. But Mm -hmm. I really worked on it as a book for for about three or four years. Yeah. Do you find that birding, like the practice of birding is a good way to kind of, I don't know, clear your head, kind of think about things in sort of a literary way? I know that I, you know, I frequently come up with some of my best ideas for, you know, podcast commentaries or just kind of avenues to explore when I'm out birding and like my mind is free from any sort of extra stuff going on like I'm pretty much just focusing on birds it seems like that's the best time when interesting ideas come into my head do you find that to be the case with you definitely and I feel like when I'm out birding I'm paying attention to detail in a totally Mm -hmm. different way and um that that idea of paying close attention uh really translates into my writing life as well and also another thing about birding is you have like you can plan all you want but you have Mm -hmm. to welcome spontaneity you know sometimes you're you're out there looking for a bird and it, it it doesn't come right it has other plans and it's it's like that when when you write as well you have to sort of just be open to, um, you know, to the surprises that that come your way. Yeah. A, a line that really resonated with me to that end uh, was when you said, I, I fell in love with birds and started to see them as part of my landscape. I think that's, you know, very much sort of the mentality of a birder, the idea that you're never really not birding, that you're sort of conscious um, you know, if with varying degrees of active awareness of everything that's sort of going on around you. At uh, what point in your journey did you sort of realize that that was happening to you more often? I think one of the most concrete moments I remember was actually sitting in my car and, um, you know, I had my attention fixed on a lamppost because I saw a red tail hawk and my yeah, husband yeah. screamed, come on, go, you know, the green. <laughs> and I didn't even notice. Um, I'm so wrapped in, um, you know, paying attention to this hawk. And that's, that's, that was kind of like the moment when I noticed like, whoa, uh, suddenly, um, birds aren't just something that I do on Saturdays or, or whatever. It's, it's just becoming a part of how I see the world. Yeah, for me, it's sort of like when I noticed that there was a wood thrush singing in the woods adjacent to uh, the soccer game that my son was, uh, that I was supposed to be coaching. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, oh, there's a wood thrush there. I'll make sure to note that on my eBird checklist. Or when I eBirded an outdoor wedding of one of my friends a few years ago. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. You you write that sort of birding is a is a process of sort of learning to befriend failure. Um, how have you become more comfortable with screwing up as a birder? And does that make you sort of less anxious about screwing up and sort of regular normal aspects of your life? Well, you know, I kind of pride myself on being an expert in misidentification. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of come to the point when, when I identify something correctly, I'm so shocked. So, fa- you know, failure is something that I embraced uh, very, very early on as a birder. And I write about this in my book, you know, one of one of my most spectacular failures was when I misidentified a green heron as a hummingbird. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still shudder at that. I, I shouldn't be admitting that on a podcast. But then again, you'll read about it in my book. Um, sure. Oh, I've got a couple whoppers too. Like I, I think that I, I make this case a lot when I'm around novice birders who sometimes have some anxiety about their skills, like you're gonna mess up a lot. And that's just part of it <laughs> and it's, it's also part of learning um mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's interesting has that helped me in the rest of my life may, may, maybe a little bit and i mean as, as a writer you're constantly messing yeah. up and rewriting and sort of you know taking taking the wrong road and then correcting yourself so i think it's you know something really really important to 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 be comfortable with yeah i've read about writers you know in the editing process, they tell you, like, no, don't be too precious about any of your stuff. Like, anything can be fixed. Anything can be made better. Like, you can't get too attached to anything that you've written. And it's sort of like that with birds, too. You know, it's a funny way of thinking about it. I think if you've been birding long enough, you sort of are become very aware of the many ways that birds can embarrass you <laughs> or can humble you. Yes. Perhaps that's a better word. Yeah. Um when you get a good look, sure, like you can you can be pretty certain about what you see, but like that's not what you're gonna get. And and maybe writing is like that too. Like you never know exactly what you're gonna get, and you just have to be open to being wrong and being, you know, having an opportunity to make something better, or get the next idea right, or the next great line that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that birds humble you because <laughs> they really do. You know, you can. It's it's possible to get a little bit smug sometimes when you're. I can't. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and you write about that in your book a little bit too. I got that, and I got that, and I got that. <laughs> yeah. Soon enough, the bird will humble you, um, in, in a spectacular way. So I think that's that's also something something I've taken from from birding. Yeah, frequently in front of people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you're birding by yourself, and you write a little bit about this in your book, like how you've become more. You've you've enjoyed birding by yourself a little bit more when you don't have anyone to sort of impress. I guess it's sort of a human, you know, need just for some people to impress whoever you're with with your with your knowledge with your amazing birding skills. But when you don't have that, um, you can be a lot more honest with yourself uh, about what you're doing, and and I, you learn a lot more. I think great to go birding with, with in groups, but that birding by yourself is such a critical part of the birding. I don't know path for lack of a better word, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. And it was something I was really afraid to do for for a long time because I was just afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to identify yeah. a single thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, slowly it's it's also become, you know, part of part of my kind of meditative birding practice that I, I love. I love a lot. And yeah, I know I'm missing a lot of stuff, but the the ones I do get by myself are so rewarding. And I'm so they really are. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you have a sort of a past as a as a musician as well. Do you think that that knowledge of of music theory helps you to become a birder? There's sort of this idea of like kind of practicing something until you get it right, certainly. And there's there's an aspect of that in birding as well. Um, do you think that the process of being a musician helps you as a birder as well? Um, well, interestingly enough, I come from a family of musicians. Um, and I do play the piano, but very recreationally, my, my entire family, they're professionals. And what's funny is that I'm, you know, I'm a pianist who has no ear. And as, as a kid growing up, I had to go to these solfege classes in order to pass my ear training component of my piano exams and it was so it was horrible it was humiliating and <laughs> I, just, I couldn't get these right and then I started birding and um, first of all people were shocked that I was horrible at birding by ear because I just had this musical <laughs> path and then they were like oh my god mnemonics and suddenly I was listening to these mnemonics you know the yellow warbler like sweet sweet you're so sweet and it just took me straight back to my solfege class <laughs> Remember, memorize intervals and it was this really traumatic moment for me but then I had this breakthrough I volunteered at a bird banding station and one mm -hmm. of the guys who does census is incredible he's an incredible birder by ear and he sort of showed me how to pay more attention to the rhythm than yeah. actual pitch which I, yeah, I thought that was great at all um and and that that gave me some hope <laughs> yeah it's it's funny because you you quote him and that was a line that stuck out to me as well that sometimes the mnemonics lead you astray to focus on the rhythms um because like some of the mnemonics are bad like they're not good and yellow warbler is one of those as well like i've never been able to hear sweet 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 i'm so sweet with a yellow warbler like i had to come up with something different yeah, and you know, the Eastern toy, drink your tea. I mean, I was mm -hmm. hearing every single bird say that. So <laughs> <really>. <laughs> they do. If you're a, a novice and you're hearing these mnemonics being taken as like the gospel truth, like a white-throated sparrow sounds like drink your tea too. <laughs> I mean, they could totally say it. And that's one of the things that I enjoyed about your book so much is that it, you go down this path too, and it's almost like, I don't want to say an outsider, but definitely a non-birder coming into this world. There is so much jargon and stuff that we sort of take for granted. And I think mnemonics are definitely one of those. And seeing how you approached that uh, in a critical way was really interesting and really useful, I think, uh, for anyone who is approaching the birding world. Okay. How strange was it when you were coming into this to have all these people speaking what feels like a totally different language? It was completely strange. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, it was it was really really odd, and I felt completely out of place. And mm -hmm. after the first time I went out birding, um, you know, everybody was talking about optics. I didn't even have a pair of binoculars. I borrowed binoculars from somebody else. You know, they were talking about LBJs. There, there was all sorts of all sorts of stuff um, flying around that I didn't understand. And I was totally going to quit at the end of that um, mm -hmm. first day. I'm like, this this is not for me. Um, but then, you know, I saw a red winged blackbird, and I fell in love with it. And yeah. I was like, oh my god, what is this? And that was kind of the moment where I. I became a little bit more curious about mm -hmm. strange jargon um, yeah. and, you know, the jokes. Like, I'll, ne I'll never forget the time we uh, we went birding on New Year's Eve because a smew was reported, uh, not mm -hmm. from Toronto, and it was such a big deal. And we ran into this birder, and as we were leaving, he said, Happy Smew Year. 
(laughs) (laughs) On the one hand, the nerdiest thing ever, but it was also so, and I started to find this really, really endearing. And I also remember the first time I understood a bird joke. And it was, it was this moment of awakening for me. (laughs) I felt it is. Yeah. We, we are such a jargony group and maybe that's true of a lot. Like, I think a lot of hobbies tend towards that way once you get to a certain point. But, um, the, the juxtaposition of like very skilled birders and novice birders and how like you can be in a group with people who are very skilled and they're speaking this language um, and it feels like you're being dropped like into the ocean almost like you don't even know what's going on uh, is, is especially true in, in birding, I think, uh, more than some other things. I mean, you've kind of been swimming in this sea of like piano jargon for your entire life. Do you see any... Uh, similarities looking at it from the outside for someone who may not be aware of that stuff? Um, you know, in a way I've been swimming in jargon my entire life because <laughs> piano stuff. And then, you know, I, I love learning languages. So I'm okay. Yeah. Some kind of grammatical jargon, yeah, quite literal jargon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what I really admire about birders is their passion for um, just, you know, for, for, for looking at birds. And so I'm, I'm willing to, tolerate and learn the jargon. And, <laughs> um, so maybe I have a kind of heightened appreciation of, of jargon. And I think it, I also think it's really magical when people love something so much that uh, they can actually speak in code about it. But I was yeah. I was really blessed um, when, you know, when I happened upon this bird group that I that I started birding with. And um, they they just really welcomed me as a beginner with open arms and they taught mm-hmm. me a lot of the jargon and they were able to sort of laugh at themselves while using the jargon. So yeah. I, I feel like maybe if I had met people who were sort of more um, pedantic about the jargon, <laughs> that might have been more off-putting. And I have met a few of those. Yeah, people. I was going to say, we do have a few of those people. I'm not going to lie. So, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I feel like as... Um, you know, as, as a group in general, birders are so welcoming of beginners and they love having beginners around yeah. because when you bird with a beginner, mm-hmm. it reminds you of the common birds. I mean, that's probably the reason I love going out birding with my husband because he's a non-birder and, mm-hmm. you know, he will stop for every American goldfinch, <laughs> um, which, which I think is kind of wonderful because I don't do that anymore. And then, it, right. you know, it reminds me of like, yeah, this is a spectacular bird. Yeah, you know, another thing that I really liked, um, and this is an idea that has sort of weirdly popped up in a couple interviews I've done lately, um, is that a lot of, you know, birding is giving yourself this permission to screw up, to bird in different ways, to, you know, find joy and discontentment and whatever aspect of birding makes you happy. I I think a lot of birding memoirs, taking that genre very broadly, uh, don't spend a ton of time on the becoming a birder. Like, they'll start at the expert level. There's less talk about the anxiety of misidentification of fitting in with this weird group of people, you know, letting go of this pretense of being, you know, quote unquote normal. <laughs> um, the kind of person who doesn't get excited about things like a spotted tohi in Ontario yard. <laughs> I think it's so useful and sort of freeing to talk about that stuff, no matter what level of birding that you find yourself at, like wherever, whatever rung you are on this ladder. Um, even if it is a ladder, I don't even know if it is like you just find where you want a bird and you kind of do that. Um, so I really appreciated that. You know, do you think it's useful to kind of talk about the process of becoming a birder as opposed to, you know, starting at a place where you automatically assume that everyone is going to be an expert? It certainly broadens the audience for this kind of book, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when I started birding, uh, 
I mean, I, I should preface that by saying I grew up completely indoors. You know, I'm Canadian and people often have this stereotype of Canadian people. As, you know, <laughs> Canadians love camping. Well, my That's family right. did not camp. No um, flannel in your closet. <laughs> my parents really thought, my mother especially, that the outdoors were dirty. You know, the outdoors were for other people. So, I mean, I grew up in, you know, concert halls, libraries, museums, you name it. But the outdoors was just something we didn't do. And so when I, when I saw my first bird, when I fell in love with the red-winged blackbird, it didn't just open this world of birds for me, but it opened this universe of nature that I hadn't ever I hadn't ever sort of stopped to, to look at or to experience. And in that sense, it really, it completely changed my life. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when I went out with my bird group for the first time, I, I had told them that I'm a beginner. But when I showed up without binoculars and, um, <laughs> you know, and, and when I was honest that the only bird I could identify was a pigeon, I mean, they, then they really recognized the extent. To that is a level of beginner that is not common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and so for me, like that, that is my journey to becoming a birder. You know, I, this isn't something I grew up with. This is something I discovered for myself. And it was actually something that was very, very shocking for the rest of my family. You know, my, my grandmother was just appalled. She's like, oh my God, what has happened to you? You used to get excited about going to the opera. Now you're excited about, uh, you know, seeing a spot of Toei at five <laughs> Like what, what's happened? Yeah. Have they, uh you know, accepted it a little bit more. They have totally come around and they buy yeah. the best t-shirts and I, yeah. my oh, partner is true. filled with bird kitsch. Like <laughs> given to me as gifts from my parents and my grandmother. And um, so, yeah, they, they, they still think it's tremendously weird. Um, but, you know, my, my parents call me every time they see a quote unquote rare bird in their backyard. It's usually a robin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have very many different looks. Yeah. You know, there's a lot in here that sort of lends a voice to kind of concepts that I hadn't given a ton of thought to. Like, you know, when you're talking about the urge to chase a vagrant, uh, you write, uh, a greater part of you wanted to see what a Western bird looked like when displaced in Eastern Canada. And um, I, I read that and it was like, yeah, like I could have in front of me a thousand photos of like a fork-tailed flycatcher from Brazil. And I'll think, yeah, that's that's fine. But show me one of like in New Jersey, and I'll think, oh, I have to, I have to see that photo, even if it's like more or less identical. You know, the habitat, the the framing, whatever. It's such a weird thing. Do you sort of feel that as well? I do, and you know, I, it's wrong to anthropomorphize, and everybody says that you should not anthropomorphize the birds. But that's actually how I fell in love with birds because I started sort of seeing them as reflections of myself, mm -hmm. and um, you know, when it. I just remember chasing that spotted toey and and recognizing that, oh my God, I have something in common with this bird. Like I, I spent a few years living in the Midwest in, in Missouri and I felt very out of place there. And, you know, being able to sort of connect with the bird on that level, even though it's it's all happening completely in my my own imagination. Right. That, just, right. that made birds sort of more real for me in a way and something mm. I could really relate to on on a deeply personal level. So that that changed my interest in birds as well. Yeah, you say that your birding is a masterclass in learning how to see and how to be present. Um, it feels like now more than ever in sort of this strange COVID year that we're all around the world sort of experiencing. Maybe maybe slightly differently in the United States than in Canada, but I think that one of the reasons that birding has been so appealing as a as a concept to sort of the general public now is because it really does encourage you to be present 
and in the moment and very conscious of the things that are in your immediate surroundings. Um, do you think that is a, a lesson that will resonate beyond, you know, perhaps the, the birding audience for this book? I hope so. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I feel like that's a lesson that's resonating with people now because, yeah. you know, especially this year or since March, I have talked to so many people who have gotten into birding or, you know, have started paying attention to the backyard birds or the birds outside their apartment windows in ways they haven't before. And they all tell me the same thing that they sort of, they find solace in that. Mm-hmm. For for a minute or for half an hour or whatever, they're watch they're watching nature and they sort of forget about themselves for a minute. It takes them outside themselves. They're present in a way that you know a lot of meditation books sort of right. to be present. And birding birding does that for you automatically because yeah. you have to be paying attention. And once again, noticing those details, and so you become really invested in uh, in the thing you're in your the thing that you're watching, and it becomes this really magical magical moment that almost it, you know for me it's soothing and healing in a, in a way that nothing else is. Yeah, practice coupled with patience, as you say. Yeah, and so I, I feel like it is resonating with people right now, and I I mean I I really hope it it lasts and that people interests in birds aren't just this kind of weird <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Pandemic pastime. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah. What kind of birding are you doing now? Um, well, it's, it's summertime. So it's been a little quieter on, on the birding front, but um, you know, the shorebirds are starting to come back and that of course is a lesson in humility in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I find shorebirds extremely challenging and yeah, I'm kind of gearing up for fall migration and usually i volunteer at the bird banding station here in toronto but um yeah things are things are challenging with that this this year so uh hopefully it'll open up later in the fall we'll see but otherwise i'm you know i go to the local local park um two three times a week and just try to bird whenever whenever i can what do you think that the person who you were when you started birding would be surprised about now I think she'd be surprised that I'm actually still doing it. (laughs) I started birding. um, I started birding after reading an essay by Jonathan Franzen called my bird problem. Like I was Mm -hmm. in the middle of a career transition. Things weren't going so well for me. And I read this essay and I just thought it was so weird, especially when he described birders. And I just kind of wondered like, who, what is this breed of human that wears these (laughs) multi-pocketed vests? And then I thought, you know, maybe, maybe that's what I need in my life. Maybe I need a bird problem. And so I went out and found this bird group kind of on, on a whim. Like it wasn't very serious. I was actually much more interested in the people who birded than the birds themselves. And so I think what surprised me most is that that I stuck with it, that I really fell in love with it, that it became something other than just these strange people, you know, enjoying this strange pastime, that it, it became a way of life for me. Yeah. Um, well, there's still a lot of strange people, uh, but they're very endearing, I've always found. They are endearing, and <laughs> it's, it's wonderful very... to sort of have this new common language with yeah. them. Uh, I really, I, I deeply enjoy that. Yeah. Julia Zarenkin is a writer and lecturer in Toronto. Uh, her website is juliazarenkin.com. Field Notes from an Unintentional Birder is available next week in Canada, next month in the United States. But I'm sure American listeners can pre-order it wherever they get their books. Uh, Julia, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. 
I did a tweet on my personal account the other day that ended up getting more attention than I expected. It was just three words, but it's something that I think is sort of important, especially with novice birders, and I want to talk just sort of briefly about how I meant it to be interpreted and how it wasn't always interpreted correctly. So the message, normalize misidentifying birds. It's something that's been on my mind as we head into fall and confusing fall warbler season. Y'all know how I feel about that. But also sparrow season and just sort of the low-level anxiety I've noted around those groups of birds, but also just birding in general sometimes. So what do I mean by normalize misidentifying birds? I mean, allow yourself to misidentify things. But what I didn't say, but definitely meant to imply, is that one... You are not going to be able to identify everything. That's just the nature of birding. And giving yourself permission to not have to put a name to everything is sort of a, a freeing feeling, you know? And indeed, as, as you grow in skill, you get better at knowing when to try to get the ID versus knowing when to just let it go. Uh, you will certainly be able to identify more, and some among us in our community can identify a ridiculously high number of birds that they encounter, but the number of unidentified birds on an outing will never reach zero. So you just might as well accept it. And two, knowing that you are going to misidentify some birds oddly allows you to be a little more confident in calling birds out. I'll explain. I've been birding for a long time and the process of identification for me is frequently sort of a subconscious thing. I'll see a bird fly by, or I'll see a bird in the brush, and with some combination of experience and learned knowledge, my gut, for lack of a better term, will sort of clue me in on what it is. So I think it's important to work on developing your birding gut instinct, your sort of birding subconscious. And the only way to do that is through repetition. The same way a basketball player will shoot 500 free throws a day, or a musician will spend a certain amount of time at practice every day just doing scales, you're training yourself to not need to think that much, to quicken those reflexes. And to do that, you just, you need to be wrong. And then you need to realize why you're wrong. And sometimes this happens instantly. Sometimes this happens when you look at photos. Sometimes it happens when you think back on an identification a week, a month, a year later. But you need to be wrong to learn how to be right. You need to miss some free throws. You need to fumble some scales. And I'll say that over the years, my gut has gotten pretty good. I'd say nine out of 10 times, maybe even a little better than that, I'm right. But that extra one time, can still produce some real whoppers. I'm sure we all have stories like that. So just own it. And if you're leading a group and this happens, it's frequently a good opportunity to explain what is going on and how you made that mistake. In my experience, people really appreciate that. But birders are strange and sometimes very protective of their reputations. And so this process, where which everyone goes through, sometimes plays out in places where one's reputation can be potentially harmed. And I think just as a community, we, we have to get past that. Be more honest about our mistakes, more humble about the ways in which birds can fool us, because they obviously can. We know that in fall more than just about any other time of the year. It's a good lesson for life, if you think about it. 
And as with all tweets that end up with a life of their own, some people miss the point. This does not mean making up birds or confidently misidentifying birds without the requisite reevaluation. I think that reevaluation is really the important part. The bottom line is, is that everyone gets stuff wrong. So let's be a little less precious of our identifications, more open about our mistakes, a little more kind to those who are learning. I do think that most birders are, are quite good about this, but you never know how your response is interpreted by those who are just figuring this stuff out. So, and to some extent, you know, we're all in that boat. Take it from someone who has been on the cutting edge of misidentifying birds for years. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining us. You get a magazine, you get discounts to our partners, and you get my great appreciation for noting this podcast is one of the reasons that you did it. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out this week to the Kristen Garlock family of Saline, Michigan, John Weir and family of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Gregory Russo of San Jose, California, Josh Teagart of Bellevue, Washington and Dan Utek of Monona, Wisconsin, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who misses the bird festival circuit deeply because of the missed opportunities to add birders to his Franz list, if not his bird list. Technical production is by John Lowry. Everyone seems to have a favorite warbler, but for John, nothing can Beethoven bird. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who want to sing a lullaby to all this anti-nest parasitism propaganda, especially as it concerns the Brahms cowbird. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, I was thinking about summer ducks and how I can't handle those identifications, especially when they're hiding and I have no idea where to go. I don't revel in saying this for all the eclipse plumages around these days, but they get pretty tough. Mozart, of course, but there are always identifications I have to take back. So it goes. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.